host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockeypedia Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me in studio today on this beautiful Friday, not outside, but inside here, it's beautiful. My buddy, Harmon Dial. Harmon, what's going on, man? Doing great, man. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited. I mean, this postseason has been so fun to watch from an entertainment perspective, and today you and I are going to talk about the two games we saw last night, some kind of takeaways from it. I wanted to, more so than doing like the traditional uh, deep dives or breakdowns of, of the games themselves, I wanted to kind of highlight some individual performances, particularly guys who I think aren't getting maybe attention that they deserve for how well they're playing, and so we can have some fun with that and just talk about uh, in general, what we saw from Panthers, Leafs, and Kraken Stars. Um, let's start with this. I want to talk a bit about Gustav Forsling, um, a player who I think is not getting nearly enough attention for how well he's playing, right? Because Brandon Montour has the mul- like multiple multi-goal games this postseason, some big goals for the Panthers. I believe he has six goals already so far. Um Everyone always, you know, you know about Aaron Eckblad, you talk about him. I feel like when you watch these broadcasts for Panthers games, you're even hearing a lot about Radko Gudis and like how much he hits or blocks shots, Mark Stahl and what a veteran presence he's, how he's provided the stability for, for Brandon Montour to roam offensively and do what he's done. And lost in the shuffle a little bit has been Gustav Forzing, in my opinion, where it seems like every broadcaster has just gotten the one note where it's like, this guy was claimed off waivers. And that's the extent of, Gustav Forsling analysis or praise and he's been so good for them that I wanted to to talk a little bit about him here and kind of highlight his game and sort of some of the stuff he's done like dating back to the regular season of course but particularly so far this postseason. Yeah it's been a huge step that he's taken especially because when you look at this Panthers blue line on paper right despite Montour's breakout it's not a great top four. It's not a great blue line in general, especially we've, we've spoken a lot about Mackenzie Wieger's departure and the impact that had. Ekblad obviously having a down season compared to last year when he was uh, playing at a borderline Norris level. So for me, the blue line was uh, a question mark, and that's where Montour sort of leveled up and Forsling has quietly played such an essential role. He sort of fits the MO of how the Panthers like to play, right? Where it's like, okay, we don't necessarily in the back end have any shutdown aces, so how we're going to defend, how we're going to try and be effective at 5-on-5 five five is we're going to have guys press. And, and of course, their forecheck has been so effective in this series, forcing the Leafs to uh, turn a lot of pucks over. And that's where a guy like Forsling is is so key in terms of his skating ability to step up aggressively and, and provide that second layer. Because if you have, let's say, an aggressive forecheck in terms of your forward groups, but your D aren't there to, to close the walls yeah. and make it difficult for the opposition's wingers, to um to make those little bump plays into the middle, it's just not going to work. And if anything, you're going to get exposed because your forwards are then caught up high, and there's a big gap between your forwards and D. So, I think his his north south way it, it's just a perfect for fit for how the Panthers like to play. Well, this regular season, he was amongst all defensemen, fifth and five on five goals, eleventh and five on five points. He was their number one player in terms of usage. And he played that way. And so far this postseason, it's kind of been an extension of that where he's averaging 25.06 per game right now without any real, like they haven't had that triple overtime sort of game yeah. yet. They kind of like, oh, he played 41 minutes tonight and that skews the average. Like this has been a very consistent 25 minutes. With him on the ice at 5-1-5, the Panthers are up 13-6. to In game two last night in particular, you know, he scores the big goal, kind of getting involved. It was like, 
there was a lot of focus on the turnover the Leafs made, and part of that is because I believe that was the ninth goal so far this postseason that the Panthers have scored within five seconds of a defensive zone. It's turnover. actually more than that because I think maybe more. Uh, I think that stat. Uh, I think it's Jackie Redmond one, right? Right. Um, that was before Verhage's game one goal. So that would Verhage would. Yeah, it was. Ten. It was eight. It was eight in the Bruins series. So that yeah, so have been the tenth one. Yeah. yeah. So that's ridiculous, right? Because I think that was what their ninth game so far this yeah. season, and. He jumps in on the play of that, right? It was a little give and go. Kachuk passes to a cross seam. You can see like his understanding of getting involved there and kind of jumping into that lane, dashing in, and then beating Ilya Samsonov, who's out of position with the shot. And then at the end of the game, what was notable to me is with about, I think, a minute 28 left, there's a defensive zone draw for the Panthers, right? After the Leafs have just been pressing them for, for five, six minutes in a row, trying to get that tying goal. There's a TV. There's a, there's a timeout call by the Leafs, right? So every player has a chance to theoretically get their rest. You know the Leafs are going to bring out their best offensive players. Paul Maurice brings out Gustav Forsling and Radko Gudis as his defense pair. There, they get the job done. They 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 eventually clear the zone. Uh, Forsling in particular does a nice job of kind of like sprawling out and taking away that that little tic tac toe pass that the Leafs like to do behind the net uh, out front to Tavares or O'Reilly, and they they close out right. He he um, preserved the lead. And so just his usage, uh, the trust the coaching staff has in him, and then how you're how he's playing, as you said, with that north-south and how it's like a perfect representation of what the Panthers are trying to do. I don't know. I just, I love his game, and I just think like the, the attention he's getting is not nearly commensurate with like his impact on this team because I think if you polled an average viewer that's just like listening purely to the broadcast that isn't necessarily thinking about this stuff, is their free time? Us. Of course, <laughs> they're probably like, oh yeah, like Mont. Oh, I've seen Montour score a bunch of goals. Yeah. I know Ekblad, of course. Yeah, he's been there for a while, and and then maybe you'd get them. You'd probably get the four's length third on that list, right? But I honestly think he is like he's their most important defenseman. He's their most relied upon defenseman, and I think like that all just kind of bears it out beyond just the goals, right? Absolutely, and he spent so much time with Aaron Ekblad for I mean this entire year, right? And that's where with Ekblad this year. It's felt like, whether it's a byproduct of the injuries, you know, whatever it is, he he hasn't been nearly as good this year. And you can sort of see that his foot speed in particular, sometimes defensively, can be a bit of a concern. And that's where Forsling has been essential in in because of how quickly he can close gaps, where his speed and, and his mobility has been able to sort of complement what Ekblad brings to the table a lot better. Uh, and so they're able to balance each other out that that way. So I, I think that's really helped that pairing work in these playoffs really well. Whereas if, if Forsling wasn't on that pair, I'd probably be a little bit more worried about Ekblad because you look at the defensive metrics in the regular season, Ekblad, Ekblad's numbers were, in terms of whether you look at shots against, chances against, actual goals against, at 5-on-5, five five, they, were, they were the worst among Panthers defensemen. So... Um, and, and you haven't noticed him at all in a bad way. And right. I think a lot of that is because, um, ironically enough, Forsling has um, has made such an impact on that pairing to sort of stabilize things. Yeah, Brooks Capco right now is just punching air. He's like, oh. <laughs> um, no, I, his movement, I think, is very important here, right? The, his ability to kind of backtrack and cover for mistakes and get back involved in the play. Because I was thinking about this. Like, it's such a good point you made there about how, because the forwards are so responsible for being aggressive on that forecheck, if the defensemen aren't in tune with that and equally involved, then you don't have really that connectivity, right? And then there's just a ton of open space and you get it past that first guy and all of a sudden the Leafs forwards just have plenty of room to skate, right? And in this case, it feels like watching these games, as well as this blue line is playing for the Panthers, other than Forsling, 
if all of a sudden a guy gets caught in space and has to retreat and cover against a puck carrier, it's like you're really holding your breath and you're like, oh my God, this is going to be a disaster unless it's Gustav Forsling because his movement is just so smooth that he can get from point A to point B and and cover for whatever openings are there. So I think, and he like he uses it offensively and we noted that, but I think defensively in particular is is kind of the important distinction. Yeah, especially as you mentioned, sort of defending entries and that's a big part where Uyghur was so good at that. Uh, gapping up, being able to read the play and just take away that that that, ta- that time and space. And so losing that skill set with him, it's even 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 a greater shortage now for the Panthers. And you look at Forsling and you're like, all right, we need, we really need you to to be able to, you know, when you're when when you're on the ice, sort of um ensure that you can defend in space and defend speed and and try and lock down the opposition's transition game. Well and I think as a larger point, the reason why this is so interesting to me is I joked about how, you know, everyone by now knows that he was claimed off waivers and that's how the Panthers got him, right? The Canucks drafted him. They traded him for Adam Glendening. A trade at the time where I was like, oh, I'm, I'm kind of interested in Adam Glendening. He's been putting off some pretty good numbers yeah. in the AHL. Uh, and that was a, a, one of the early L's that I took in terms of player evaluation, certainly. Um, but then he also got traded for Calvin DeHaan as well to get to the Hurricanes in the first place. And I think there's this idea that you know, to get really good top pair or even top four defensemen, it's like you have to draft these guys and you have to draft them high because that's the only way you can get it. These guys just aren't available. And then time and time again, we see especially players who like don't necessarily produce a ton offensively, although I did note he's, he was very productive at 5 and 5 this year, but aren't necessarily like, you know, don't have a cannon shot that's scoring a ton of goals or or don't do any sort of obvious offensive things. They generally they don't slip through the cracks, but I do feel like they they become more available than you'd think, right? And I'm, maybe I'm just like I've got John Marino on the mind as well. He's a different player than Forsling, but also like moves really well. Just a very good hockey player doesn't necessarily have one sort of discernible skill, but you put it all together, and his team is better on the ice when he's not. And he was available this summer. For guys like Forsling are available, not necessarily the waivers is is an extreme example, but I think it's maybe a bit overblown that you can't find good productive defensemen in like creative ways, right? Especially if you know what you're looking for. You can, although, I mean, I guess Devontae's would be another example, but I mean, I mean, maybe I'm just jaded from watching the Canucks and yeah. being like, oh, well, that's, why, that, that's why I said you have to know what you're looking for. Yeah. Because you can certainly get defensemen anywhere. Yeah. Unless you're looking for the right things though, they might not necessarily give you the results. Now, a lot of it is time and place and also like finding the right spot opportunity, as we said, like it's perfect for how the Panthers want to play, right? I think- if Forsling had gone to some other environment and was playing a different role, he might not necessarily have had this type of career arc, right? So that is certainly at play here. But I just, I don't know. I I feel like these guys can be found if you are on the cutting edge in terms of like what you yeah. what you what you prioritize from your defenseman, right? Because I bet there's still a lot of people that are like Gustav Forsling. I don't know. He's like he's kind of undersized. Yeah. And, a bit too risky. You can't have him there for for important defensive spots, and it's like he's out there at the end of a road playoff game in a defensive zone shift, preserving a one goal lead and doing just fine. So yeah, no, that 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 is a good point. And I mean, there are usually at least like two, three defensemen. I feel like per year, maybe maybe more that random like don't get acquired for a lot and and end up playing um, huge roles. I mean, you even think about, and this is an older example, but when uh, the the Avalanche initially acquired Ryan Graves and the impact that he was able to able to make, and uh, of course since then, 
people recognize his value and because of the expansion draft he had to go to New, New Jersey. But uh, yeah, I mean, you are you are right. It's it's but you're right. It has to be like a cutting like you have to be an organization that's on the cutting edge and you have to really know what you're um looking for. Yeah, certainly. Um, okay, sticking with that series, I also wanted to talk about William Nylander because he's been a as usual, it's like an annual tradition, right? Playoffs come around and, and it's a hot button topic that everyone wants to talk about. And certainly, um, you know, he hasn't produced in terms of goals yet. Uh, in his eight games the Leafs have played, he's got zero five one five goals, just the two secondary assists, right? And in game one, there was his play off the puck in front of their own net and, and in defensive spots was was highlighted as a problem, right? And that's kind of been a recurring thing. And then in game two, he has the turnover in the neutral zone that leads to, I believe, Barkov's goal. Um, and so a lot of that has kind of been brought back up to the surface as like, ah, like this is, we're doing this again. And just, I don't, there seems to be, it's like a gap in terms of the way he's talked about and what I'm personally watching when I watch these playoff games, because to my eye, he was the best player on the ice in game two, even though he didn't score. But for whatever, like, I know, I know it's not for whatever reason I just said what, what the reason is, but he's like highlighted as the problem rather than a good thing that the Leafs did. Yeah. And, and there's a critical difference between a guy that it isn't producing and a guy that is like, isn't even creating chances, yeah. right? There's when uh, the case of Nylander, it's clearly a case of you watch him and, and he really looks like he's on the cusp of breaking out. Look, there's no doubt about it in terms of production wise, you need more from him. And if, and if you don't get it the rest of the series, the Leafs are going going to be in trouble because they're going to be overly reliant on um, on Matthews and Marner to to carry the load offensively. But you're right; he was outside of that that turnover, which I mean, you still have to factor it in. But man, like, what was it? Two posts that he hit. He hit two posts himself, and then he passed the puck out to John Tavares, who also hit the crossbar, I believe, in the second period. And that was all in like a short sequence. And and in the third third period was, I think, the first time we've. In these playoffs, have really seen the Leafs full throttle. I feel like at their absolute apex best, and the Panthers were hanging on for dear life, right? Exactly, and it, it really looked like Nylander was the one driving the bus for that. He he was the one leading leading the charge, and and the key too was, I felt like he was assertive in taking the puck to the net, and, and sometimes this this is one of the areas that I can understand why it's been a criticism in the past where you see the flashy skating around the perimeter of the offensive zone and and and, and some um dinosaurs sort of go oh he's just a perimeter guy but when he's at his best you really do see him not only use the speed but he's able to leverage his hands to get in on the inside and forcefully drive to the net and that's the key for what i feel like made him so dangerous in that game yeah, I don't know. It bugs me because I'm not sure if you caught this, but the other night Dallas Eakins was on um, on the broadcast on, on the intermission panel, right? And he made this point about how 80% of the game is played along the boards or along the wall, right? And everyone was like, wow, that's like such a good point. And also that's such a large period of the, of the game. That's something I didn't really think about. Well, what do you think the boards are? The boards are the perimeter, right? Mm-hmm. It's like a lot of the game is yeah. played out there. I don't, when, when we, like, I, I, I know that, I know what you're saying in terms of like there's certainly times where skilled players in a playoff series against the against a difficult opponent can be like held to the outside and yeah. they're trying to probe through but they just can't they're turning it over they just can't get in there yeah and then so they're left taking these low percentage shots and and I just don't I refute that that's what's happening here I think you could like isolate individual clips 
throughout the course of a game and be like, oh, well, he was on the perimeter here. But then he literally leads the Leafs in like every single scoring chance, yeah. inner slot, off the rush, every single possible way you want to slice and dice it. And so it's just not really matching up with the way it's being perceived, right? Like, yes, you need to... There, a lot of the game is played on the perimeter. Now, eventually you have to break through and he's also been doing that. It just hasn't been going in, unfortunately. And so that's the discrepancy. Now, there's less runway, I guess, in the playoffs for regression to happen, right? It's like in the regular season, if a guy is putting up these numbers where he's not scoring, but he's generating chances, you and I would be like, well, give it time. It's going to happen. Yeah. You trust the process. But now if the Leafs lose two more times in the next five games, their season's over and they're at home and it doesn't really matter what that process was. So I understand the the angst from that perspective, but it just feels like it's sort of being um, misdirected, I guess. Well, isn't Nylander the perfect encapsulation of game two for the Leafs in general where, okay, he generates a lot of chances and overall, by and large, great game for him, but A, he's getting stymied by Bobrovsky. B, he just can't buy a bounce. Yeah. And C, for all the good that he did, there is one catastrophic sort of giveaway that the Leafs give up on a platter that the Panthers didn't. I feel like that's that was really the story of the game in general, where you look at it and go, there was, it was overwhelmingly good, but you just couldn't buy a break, couldn't buy a bounce, just couldn't beat Bobrovsky, and then just one... That one giveaway, that one turnover just costs you because of how opportunistic the Panthers are in capitalizing on turnovers. And that somehow, that, that sometimes is, is the the difference between winning and losing in the playoffs, right? Um, yeah, through these two games in this series, Nylander, Matthews, and John Tavares have 35 shots on goal, 22 high danger chances, and have combined for zero goals in that time. And so... Part of that is bad luck. Part of that is Brovsky probably playing over his head, right? And you'd have to think that there's going to be a game coming here at some point where they just capitalize on a bunch of those and score seven goals as a team or something, and those guys are responsible for it. You just hope that, that happens in game three, I guess, before it gets too out of hand. But I don't know. I've just I I've got him down for, in game two, Nylander had four scoring chances at 5-1-5. He set up three other scoring chances, and he was responsible for 14 five on five shots for the Leafs and either taking them or setting them up. Like it was just about as dominant an offensive individual performance as you're going to get without scoring a goal. I guess without scoring a goal is kind of the, the key yeah. the key part of that sentence. But I just, it, it bugs me. It, it's it's the, the, the discourse with the Leafs is never going to be rational, right? Like there's just so many voices from different angles and, and it's like sometimes it's the lowest common denominator in terms of hockey analysis, but it just bugs me when, it would be one thing if he wasn't getting these chances, then I'd be like, all right, he really needs to produce. But at this point, it's like, what what more can you do beyond just the puck going in for you? So, Yeah, no, that, that's totally fair. And the other thing, too, is he's proven that he doesn't, like in past playoffs where everybody was criticizing the Leafs for their first-round failures and, and Marner was sort of melting down or Matthews maybe was going quiet in you know games five, six, and seven when... And during elimination games, Nylander was the guy that was consistently setting up, uh, stepping up. And you see it where all got like, I feel like almost every player has had a period where, at least one or two series, where they, they just go quiet for a bit. You know, like, it's just inevitable. Every offensive player is streaky because you, you're just not, unless you're Leon Dreisaitl, I guess, you're just not scoring in every single game. Exactly. And so Nylander's long-term playoff track record is strong enough to where you can 
again, I understand the angst from the perspective of, okay, like, we can't afford to lose game three. Yeah. So we need it to happen and now. You're going to be judged as an offense, as a top offensive player. You're ultimately going to be judged on how many goals you either score or help create, right? Yeah. And I just said there's been zero at 5-1-5, and so that that does make sense. But it just, I guess my issue with it is is it's being sort of attributed to, like, a lack of effort or caring or um or not being like a playoff performance. Exactly. And I just feel like that is that is the laziest form of analysis yeah. that that doesn't really match up with like watching watching these games. This isn't even an, an, an analytics versus eye test thing. It's like how can you watch that game and come away from it with that being your take unless you had a pre existing axe to grind or a pre existing sort of angle that you're trying to push. Uh, absolutely. And that's where again I, I was gonna say like the long term tracker could matters there where yeah. it's like this guy's typically always produced in the playoffs. I understand it, yes, output wise, performance wise, it's been disappointing not to get the not to get the results, but this shouldn't be a relitigation of is William Nylander a playoff performer? Is he is he a core player you could trust in the postseason? Yeah. But those are the those are the the headlines that generally sell, right? So that's yeah. that's the way you got to go. I don't know. Is there anything else from from that series? Like we'll we'll, we'll go to break here soon, and then we'll do stars cracking on the other side. Is there anything else from those first two games that you wanted to kind of highlight or caught your eye? It is interesting that they only have one game, I believe, in the next five or six nights because there's yeah. an extra day off in between games two and three and three and four, and I think that'll serve the. I mean, you could argue it could serve the the Panthers well because. They had such a quick turnaround from Game Seven in Boston to these two games, and they play such a physically taxing style on their players that I'm sure an extra day off will help them. But I just feel like for the Leafs, their best players or their most dangerous guys have been their younger players, and the biggest issues for me have been like Ryan O'Reilly and Mark Giordano, and their fittingly their older players. And so I wonder if those guys might actually benefit quite a bit from having an extra day off and, and that might make a difference um, in game three. Well, Elliot Friedman also made a great point that for Bobrovsky, he usually, usually breaks down if you play him a lot in, in terms of a long stretch of starts. And that extra start could really help him in particular. Uh, it sounded like uh, the people that, you know, were, were obviously in Toronto were, were noting that he looked exhausted after that game. So uh, I think it might actually favor the Panthers a little bit more than more than uh, more than the Leafs. But you mentioned Giordano; that pairing was awful. Like they they've got to do something with that with that third pairing. And Lilligren in particular, I think was was worse. Um, they were just overwhelmed by that forecheck, and and honestly, it was nerve wracking every time they stepped on the ice. Where it felt inevitable that they were going to make a mistake, going to get hemmed in, and you were just holding on for dear life when they were on the ice and. Uh, I saw an interesting stat from uh, Jonas Siegel. In these playoffs, the Leafs have been outscored 11-4 to with Jordano on the ice at 5-5. Five five. Yeah. yeah, in like 112 minutes or something. And at the start of the postseason, that Lightning series, a lot of that was being attributed to, to Justin Hole because he's like a very easy scapegoat. Yeah. Right? Like he just like looks so like unassuming and it's like, oh, yeah. it must be this guy's fault. And then so they take him out of the lineup and it has not gotten better for Giordano. And at the point, I wasn't necessarily trying to um, alleviate the blame from Hole because he certainly was being like targeted and, and not playing well enough against the Lightning. But the point I was trying to make was it seems kind of too convenient to just lay all the blame on him when I think a lot of the issues were with the way the Leafs as a team were playing in the neutral zone, but also his partner kind of leaving him out the dry or putting him in positions where he had to do too much. And now you watch this. I mean, there was that, that one play in game two where it didn't even lead to a goal, but it was like 
Nick Cousins sort of just weaved through the neutral zone and entered the offensive zone and then got it off to Kachuk and Kachuk got a nice rush chance off and Samsonov stopped it. But you know, re-watching that, I was like, man, Mark Giordano, like, he was just sagging back so far and was clearly very concerned about the speed that was coming at him. And it was a very, like, old guy move where you're like, yeah. self-preservation, right? He's like, I don't want to... I don't want to expose myself here, so I'm just going to keep taking a few steps back. And in, in turn, that's what creates the scoring chance. And that's sort of what's been happening. And I mean, it's not, he's what turning 40 here soon. He's also playing a lot of hockey. And so I wonder how much of it is rest and how much of it is maybe he's just not really the player that he used to be because the defensive results were remarkable even as recently as during like parts of the regular season. But it just has not looked the same so far this postseason. He also had to t- take on bigger minutes in yeah. the regular season. So it's, so it's a case of... It just feels like the workload has, has caught up, caught, caught up, and of course his minutes are are, are down now in the postseason, down a lot, uh, understandably. But the cumulative impact of a full eighty two game season and then a grinding seven game or not seven game six game playoff series yeah. uh, against three overtimes, Lightning, exactly against against the Lightning, it's um it's a lot to ask for, especially because they because more Morgan Riley in the regular season wasn't at his best. It felt like all the, they they were sort of filling some of the tougher sort of like defensive matchups uh, by committee. And, and that meant guys, um, guys like Jordano had to to play a little bit more than, than maybe ideal. And also, I mean, I mean, the Panthers are a really tough matchup both yeah. on and off the puck because they just like, they only have the one gear and it's attacking. Yeah. So that's tough. It's, it's, you know, with Lilligren, I've liked his play since he got back into the lineup in the offensive zone. I think you see a lot of the value he provides in extending plays and, you know, making like nifty little, extensions uh in the offensive zone in that way but the skill set of having to go back against a heavy four check that pressures you and make a play under that sort of circumstance is a very different skill set being as being sort of a a traditional puck moving defenseman doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be able to handle that and i think that's where we've seen him struggle a little bit and i know the leafs were concerned about that. that's why he wasn't really playing in last year's series against the lightning and he wasn't at the start of this one either right and so we're seeing that crop up a little bit and and that would be concerning but i mean at the end of the day they're down to nothing but you do have to there's a lot of positives to draw yeah. i guess right and it's like if sergey Bobrovsky just falls off a little bit or if the panthers are slightly less opportunistic on the chances they do get this could be a different story now i'm sure the bruins are telling themselves that as well and they're at home now watching this series, so that shouldn't provide necessarily too much comfort, but it's not necessarily like full-blown panic time, I don't think, despite yeah. losing two home games. It's home. it's strange because I actually had that feeling after, obviously after the end of the game, where I was looking at it and going down 2-0, both losses at home, typically you'd be like really worried. You'd be close close to panicking and yet for some reason it, it just didn't feel like that time yet. Obviously to a whole is it is is going to be challenging to to come back come back from and, and the Panthers are playing some of their best hockey, but it it just feels like Toronto's still on the cusp of of breaking out really and um, like you mentioned oddly I don't know if comfort is the right word, but it, it I'm uh, I wouldn't be worried or, or panicking yet if, if I'm Toronto but yeah I mean I'd be, I'd, I would be worried yes. but I wouldn't be panicking yeah, yeah I think that's the, that's the best way to distinguish it yeah um, okay Harm let's take a break here and then when we come back we'll uh, switch gears and talk about the other series you are listening to the Hockey PDO cast streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network 
Your number one spot for Flames coverage can be found on Flames Talk with me, Pat Steinberg. Exclusive interviews, trusted insiders, and the latest news. Listen live weekday afternoons at 4 or stream the Flames Talk podcast on demand. All right, we're back here in the Hockey PDO cast, joined by Harmon Dial. Uh, Harm, let's let's talk about Kraken Stars. Um, the Stars bounced back in Game Two. Uh, it was a pretty, you know, at the end there, it got a little hairy in terms of like the Kraken scored that goal to make it four two, and then they they pulled their goalie for a couple minutes, and we're getting some chances. Um, but for the most part, especially for the first, I'd say like fifty five minutes of that game, it was pretty decisive in terms of just where the game was being played, what the Stars were doing, what they were accomplishing, and so that has to be feel good for them. And coming away from that, you heard, I think Kevin Bieksa was the one highlighting Wyatt Johnston during one of the intermissions. Um, I wanted to talk more about him because he's been one of my under-the-radar sort of favorite players to track this season. And I, it was only his second goal so far this this postseason, but I just feel like with the way he's playing, it feels like he's going to score a bunch more here and he's going to become, if he isn't already, a very like household name that everyone knows, not just people who are watching Stars games. And so that's exciting because I feel like for our listeners here, I want them to jump in and be sort of the smart fan, right? I want them to jump in and, and, and be early telling their friends who don't listen to the show. I mean, first off, they should be telling them to tune in and listen to the video cast on Sports at 650. But I want them to be like, Wyatt Johnson, you should watch this guy. He's yeah. he's getting chances. He's going to start scoring some goals because, man, I've tracked four of the eight Stars games so far this postseason, and he has 17 scoring chances in those four games by himself. And so... Just the two goals so far. One came last night. There's a lot more coming here, and I'm very excited about him. Well, his skill set is mature beyond his years. Yeah. Right? He plays like a veteran game. Exactly. It's like you'd look at a 19-year-old who is pretty slight. It Mm -hmm. it definitely isn't the biggest guy. And you'd go, all right, he had a good regular season. But typically, you'd be be going, maybe you're a little bit concerned about, okay, first taste of postseason hockey. Uh, There there might be some growing pains. You'd typically expect that. But the way Johnson plays... It's kind of like you mentioned, this wily veteran style where he's so tenacious on the puck. Uh, they highlighted a clip of him uh, winning a, a battle against, can't remember who the Kraken player was, but somebody way bigger than him just stripping the puck. And the combination of smarts that he has, the combination of just how many battles he wins with with his stick in sort of tight, high-traffic areas, um, and how he can get on the inside it's so effective in playoff hockey. Like that's that's the name of the game, especially because everybody talks about on the postseason how many goals are are really right around the crease or really in that inner slot and how difficult it is to get to those places. And Johnson's shown that he can consistently get there as a 19 year old um, who still over the years is going to pack on pack on a little bit more size. Is going to become even more experienced. Is going to be able to make reads at, at an even sharper level. It's um, it, it's pretty cool to think about the player that he not only already is, but that he will be once he has more experience under his belt. Yeah, I don't know if he's paying rent living at Joe Pavelski's house right now, but he should be paying rent like living around the other team's crease because that's like he is just eating there right now. And you're right. Like I think he's listed at like six one or one ninety or something. Like he's not and you watch him and he's not necessarily he doesn't he's not, he's not undersized, yeah. but he's also I mean, he's nineteen years old, right? Like he's not like a power forward necessarily. Yeah. But through smarts and also being like clearly deceivingly strong, 
Um, and then the hands as well, right? Where like when he gets that puck in tight, he can make a play with it. It's allowed him to to really be productive there. So this regular season, he scored 24 goals. 21 of them were at 5-on-5. Five five. That was more than guys like Tim Stutzla, Jesper Bratt, Kyle Connor, Alex Ovechkin, Leon Dreisaitl. Um, There have been 198 teenagers to play a regular shift since 2007 in the NHL. He is 20th on that list out of those 198 guys in 5-on-5 five five expected goal generation. He was he didn't get recognized for it with uh with a Calder finalist nomination. I imagine he'll probably like he was fourth on a lot of people's lists or whatever. Um I personally had him over Stuart Skinner on my on my fake ballot, but I understand why like the, the counting stats weren't necessarily that sort of impressive. But it just feels like with the context of doing most of it at five on five in the in the role that he played where he wasn't necessarily playing top minutes, man, like he was very productive. He's going to score a ton of goals here the rest of this postseason. And I don't know. I just I wanted I wanted to highlight him because I feel like this is a good time to get in while you still can before the elevator just goes straight to the moon. Yeah. It, and when it comes to guys that um, you're looking at, where what it takes to sort of get those eye popping point totals, so much of it is just opportunity accumulation. Yeah. It, it, it's just a, uh, especially first unit power play time, which he obviously didn't get. So. That that's I think a, a product of of a lack of opportunity more than more than anything else, and and I don't mean that in a criticism way where it's like oh he should have had way more opportunity, but it's just you know some guys are in situations where they're they're just naturally because of the state of the roster or or, or how or they're on less talented teams, there just is more opportunity to st- to step into more of those prime offensive situations, and really I think with Johnston for Dallas it highlights how much they've improved compared to last season in terms of their secondary scoring, mm-hmm. right? Through a variety of uh, of factors. Obviously, uh, Jimmy Benz bounced back and had a monster year. Uh, Dodonov has been an excellent trade deadline pickup. I mean, you look at, they gave up Denis Kiryanov, who they wouldn't, they weren't going to yeah. qualify anyway. So essentially got him for free. I think he had 15 points in 23 games on the stretch and now four goals in eight playoff games. Uh, he's been fantastic for them. Max Domi's got seven points in eight games. Um, of course, signed Mason Marchman in the offseason, who adds an uh, who adds another uh, player. He needs player to stop flopping. Yeah, that I I know this was a big uh, round one topic where the Wild were complaining of the Stars dive, and I don't think they necessarily as a team dive more than any other team. Every everyone embellishes in today's game, and you should you should try to draw as many power plays as you can, considering how important they've been this postseason. Um, but he had a couple in in game two in particular. Where I was just like, dude, you know, it's unnecessary. Your your whole thing is that you're you're a big strong guy. You don't need to be kind of yeah playing this way i think if anything you should just embrace being even tougher and using your frame no, exactly. to stay on your feet so um but yeah no you're right the, the secondary scoring and the different ways right so domi adds that kind of in game one when they were down and they were pushing and trying to tie it and they did eventually sending it to overtime his ability to kind of just north south create off the rush and enter the puck with possession played such a big role in that and really shined through the dawn of his like creativity and and playmaking has really has really shined through as well. And yeah, this team's going to be adding Logan Stankoven at some point in the future mm-hmm. as well. I mean, they've drafted quite well, but I'm really excited. Maverick Bork as well. Like they have a lot of guys who can conceivably could contribute to this team on ELCs as soon as next year. And so that has to be exciting for Stars fans. Well, not not only that, but also with Sagan because of when Pavelski was out stepping into that top line role and, and fitting in like a glove, that's allowed them to use Pavelski on the second line, which is like. <laughs> He's been, that gives them another. I mean, he did score the four goals. I will say though, 
I'm not sure how much of this is, is affecting it at all, but Jason Robertson hasn't really played up to his yeah. uh, regular season ability so far this postseason. He's at flashes and he's he's gotten his points, but for a guy who like, because he's obviously not the fastest player, right? Like he just does, he strings together so many little smart and like successful mm-hmm. plays over the course of a game that eventually add up to him being in a position to score. And it just hasn't come as easily for him this postseason. He's been mm-hmm. making very uncharacteristic, like little. Yeah, he's mistakes. definitely looked off. Pucks bouncing off him. He's looking a little, a little shy in terms of actually playing a bit more of a perimeter game than than he generally does in the regular season. And so, um, could be purely a coincidence. I'm not sure, but I I do think we like we'll see Pavelski there at some point, if if only just to sort of get him. That's going, a good point. Give him a bit of that like familiarity yeah. in his game. Yeah, that's true. I I'd been think like Robertson had definitely wasn't looking like Robert hasn't been looking like, looking like Roberts and I just didn't I should have been smart smart enough to connect that okay maybe maybe it's related to Pavel, Pavelski getting I mean it might not like it's it, yeah it's an easy line to draw it might be totally no I, I think I think it's totally fair but it, it is nice for the stars to finally have options and not be a team where it's right. like well last year it was like the, if the one top line isn't scoring they're just not doing yeah it. and and I mean there was a point too where even for them now long term the big picture that is so key for them because we saw with Colorado in these playoffs, right? If you're relying on just one elite line, that's not going to take you very far in the take you very far in the postseason. So for them to through all of these different players, obviously with um with Johnson being one of the, one of the more prominent ones, have this level of um, offensive contributions from the second and third line that bodes well not only for this series where it gives them scoring depth that the abs didn't um relative to obviously mm-hmm. uh the kraken and trying to slow uh slow them down uh the kraken trying to slow the stars down uh, but also long term moving forward and in trying to sustain yourself as a contender i think that's huge yeah is there anything else on on either of these teams or do you want to take uh we've got a, a couple mailbag questions here but i'm gonna carry uh, I just want to quickly point out that I, th- I think it's huge that the Stars' power play broke through in Game 2. I, I mean, that's an area where when you look at Seattle's penalty kill down the stretch in the regular season was really starting starting to excel. And, um, a big reason why they were able to knock off Colorado was they held the Avs to, what was it, an 11-12% power play in that first-round yeah. series. So, and they didn't, lay, they didn't take any to begin with. It, exactly. So that's going to be an interesting trend moving forward because Seattle's penalty kill needs to get back to... To, to where it was and, and they can't take obviously as um as many penalties yeah yeah no that's a big one i think one of the goals um it might have been the y johnson one actually came like five seconds after a power yeah. expired and that basically is a power play goal as well um okay here uh we got a question that i'm kind of curious for your take on it says um regarding power play zone entries and this is coming from i think a leaf center at least it's attributed to the leaves but i think we can take this for the league as a whole as sort of like a, a tactical question why do teams drop back all the time with a draw pass? Why would you want to put every player from the opposition between the puck and the net? Wouldn't developing a quick breakout ahead with a primary attacker have a better success rate? I'm curious for your take on this because I know this is like, it's a very, the draw pass on the power play is a, um, it's a polarizing topic, right? There's a yeah. big fans of it. And then there's people that are just like, it drives them absolutely crazy. Yeah. So this is interesting because I remember around 2019, I did, I did a bunch of Canucks tracking uh, regarding different power play zone entry types. I'd categorize like four or five different set breakouts that they would try. And this was at a time where everybody in Vancouver was just so sick and tired of the draw pass. Yeah. And what's funny is after tracking, I mean, 
I think a couple hundred power play entries, the draw pass was like by far the most effective in um, in, in in helping a team get set up in the offensive zone. When it doesn't work, it looks terrible, yeah. right? We know, but statistically, it just works more often than not, especially because the thing is trying to beat a penalty kill with speed through the neutral zone or trying sort of get a quick strike, catch them off guard. That doesn't work because a penalty kill, when they recover the puck, they clear it down the ice, they're getting changed. They're not, they're probably not chasing you down the ice trying to hound the puck. Yeah. They're already sort of in that set position and you need support around the offensive blue line in terms of how many times on an entry do you see situations where it's like they kick, they kick the puck out to the walls and for a successful setup, they need to be able to bump it down, bump it back into the middle or make that short little four, four to five foot pass. And it's done and it's orchestrated in a very small area of space where it's like that teammate, close teammate support is necessary. If you're trying to, I feel like if you're trying to go a quick strike, you don't like you're going to be left in, in a lot of like one on two, one on one on three, two on three sort of situations where you're you're not going to have enough of your own teammate support. It is also very personnel driven, right? Like if you have Nathan McKinnon or Connor McDavid or even the stars with the Rupe hints where you have sort of like this kind of like supernova that can just take the puck and beat multiple people off the rush and get it in effortlessly that way, that's a good strategy. But for a lot of teams, they don't have that player, especially if their best offensive players are kind of more, uh, take a more methodical approach. So you take the Leafs, for example, for my money, their best rush player is William Nylander, right? But he doesn't even play on their top unit power play right now. And so Austin Matthews isn't necessarily going to take the puck deep in his zone and just carry it all the way up the ice, right? If anything, he's going to try to dump it in and then and then you're going to go after chasing it. And so I think that's why they're trying to kind of generate that extra speed to speed up whoever is, is coming back to get it. And so I, I think that's what happens. But I actually disagree with you. I I, I like it when teams try to um, to attack off the rush on the power play more. I remember, what was the year that the Bruins lost to the Blues in the Stanley Cup Finals? Was that 2019? 2019, yeah. So I remember at that time, especially all like through the Eastern Conference Finals, so through the first three rounds, like all of their power play goals and their power play was clicking really well at that time were coming within like five seconds of either a, a zone entry or off the faceoff. And that's exclusively how they were beating teams. Like they weren't getting it in, passing it around, biding their time. And then after a minute of sustained pressure scoring, it was like quick hitting before the other team could get set. And it's easier said than done, but I do think that's that might be a bit of an underutilized approach. I think teams in general just view it, especially at the start of a face-off. Like if you lose the opening draw and it gets cleared, you're like, all right, we got a minute and 45 here. We're going to take our time. We don't want to rush. And so we're going to try to get set up in the zone slowly and then pick them apart that way. And I actually wish there was generally a bit more of a sense of urgency on a lot of these power plays. I agree in the sense that it's effective as um, as a mixing things up. Sort of thing. Right. I just don't think it works as a primary strategy. I think that's where you can maybe you look at it as like uh, if you really look at different entry strategies, maybe the percentage of times that you're trying to catch a team off guard. Because you're right. I mean, even with the Canucks, a lot of times I think you'd see at least recently part of Quinn Hughes's evolution. I think on the power play was him realizing that okay, this draw pass is like everybody's expecting it. So a lot of times he would just like snap a stretch pass 
while the penalty kill is changing to spring a guy like JT Miller off the rush or um, or or or, he, or some other sort of way, and it worked really effectively, but it doesn't change the fact that the drop pass was still their go-to like primary right. strategy, if that makes sense. Like the the number like your default, if if that sort of makes sense. I agree in the sense that maybe the percentage of times that you try and catch teams off guard or try something else should work. I just think that, you know, when I've done tracking in the past, um, the draw pass has by far been been the most effective. The key, as you mentioned, is just you can't turn to it every single time. Well, yeah, the predictability hurts, certainly. And I think I wonder how much of this is going to change with how aggressively penalty kills are generally skewing. Like something I've really noticed this postseason mm-hmm. is when teams are having success on the penalty kill, it's when they're very aggressively, as you'd expect, stepping up the blue line and just simply like not allowing you to enter with possession and establish yourself because power plays are getting so good now and so efficient that once you get set in the zone, it's it's pretty much a matter of time until you at least get a good chance, if not score. And in this case, when teams are stepping up, particularly with the top penalty kill units and really trying to disrupt and poke the puck and, and not allow you to do so... Um, that's when sort of a lot of problems have been posed for some of these top power plays. And so I think that's going to be something that only continues more and more. And so I'm kind of curious to see how much of that is going to change and whether there's going to be other sort of tactical advancements from a power play perspective to ensure that you're kind of combating against that beyond just sort of dumping it in and chasing after it. Yeah, it's it's interesting because when I sort of was diving deeper into power plays, you know, a few years ago, by far the most predictive stat for whether a power play would score is the efficiency of tr- translating entry attempts into getting set up. Right. So it's yeah. like that that's really the name of the game. And that's why even just winning the initial draw off a power play is so huge. Yeah. That's yeah. actually that's actually where face offs in my opinion are wildly underrated. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's it's a world of a difference if you get set up right away and you've got a full two minutes versus, you know, if it's if they get the initial clear, you're already shaving off 15, 20 seconds there. And then sometimes, because it's not always easy to enter, enter the zone, you might fail a couple times. And, and by the time you you look at the clock, it's like 119 left on the power play, and you haven't even gotten a chance to get set up. Yeah, and then some of these teams at that point are like, all right, well, let's bring on PP2 here. Exactly. God, yeah. No, it's. In- I mean, it's tough to ultimately quibble with because you look and power play efficiency is at an all-time high, and especially this postseason, it's like through the roof in terms of, how often teams are scoring when they're on the man advantage. So it's tough to quibble with the tactics of like, oh, we need to we need to keep up with penalty kills because something isn't working. Like everything is working for the most part. But um, the interplay there between that uh, as teams go more aggressive on both ends is, is really interesting to consider. Um, all right, Parm, last question here from Kyle. Which series would you like to be a best of nine in round two? Edmonton, Vegas. Yeah, that's what Kyle said. Personally, I'm going Edmonton and Vegas. Yeah, I am as well. I'm 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 really enjoying this Leafs Panther series. I I certainly wouldn't mind seeing more games of that. Um, maybe not all the all of like melodrama and and talking points that come from the games, but um, yeah, I mean, especially game, we've only seen one game so far of of Edmonton Vegas. If that was an, an indication of how this series is going, then I would certainly sign up for eight more of those. Um, but it would probably the answer probably would be Edmonton versus anyone, right? Because I yeah I saw a tweet where it was like win or lose. The Oilers have to make a show of it, right? It's like, yeah, they just can't, they can't like win a regular game or just like lose without some sort of crazy comeback effort where they score a bunch of goals and at least make it ex- like it always is peak entertainment. Yeah, it's, 
it's been a heck of a series, and especially the tempo and the pace, and and you know that 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 is going to be back and forth on like Devils and um and um and Hurricanes, for example. It's like those are two evenly matched teams, but it's just you know it's going to be lower event hockey. Both teams are so disciplined, they're so structured. It's it's not it's not as fun and um and flowing and and there's not as much open ice in in that series, and that's why Edmonton Vegas has been so um so much fun and. Fredmonton, man, they like. It feels like they're a defenseman short on the right side. Vincent Deharnay yeah. has been, especially in this series, it's a tough, tough draw for him with the speed that the Vegas likes to attack with off the rush. Right? It's, it's a, it's a problem. Yeah, I mean, the way I look at it is, Vegas on the right side has Zach Whitecloud on their third pair. I would probably take Whitecloud as Oilers' second best right shot defenseman after Bouchard. Others might disagree in terms of no, DC, no. but I like White Cloud a lot, yeah. and I'm like, yeah, you're right. So that depth of Vegas's blue line is is definitely their biggest advantage in this series. Yeah. All right, Harm. Uh, let the listeners know where they can check you out, what you're working on now that the uh, now that the Canucks season is over and you're not spending every single waking hour watching Canucks games, you have more time to indulge in some of this postseason stuff. Are you going to be doing more more national content? Yeah, I'm actually going to be doing a ton of uh, draft-related uh, coverage, especially with the lottery. Coming up soon, a bunch of video deep dives on some of the top guys like Mitchkov and, and Fantilli. And this is a time of year when I'm starting to talk to scouts and try and figure out, okay, where, where are their headspaces at? And uh, it's been interesting to, to have those those conversations, and I'm excited to work on those pieces uh, over at The Athletic. Awesome, man. Well, we'll have you back on soon to talk more playoff hockey. That's going to be it for us this week here in the PDO cast. Um, as usual, the only plug I have is go smash that five-star button wherever you listen to the show and uh, drop us some love and a nice little review. And we'll be back Monday with another week of PDO cast here on the Sportsnet Radio Network.